1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. Order. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, we are out at Township 7 Winery in Langley, British Columbia, and uh, our guest today is Brad Jerzak, and we're going to be introducing him in a moment. But we also have on the microphone right now, uh, with myself, Ken Bell, uh, Allison Williams Hello. is here. Hello. And of course, our uh, trusty producer, uh, Rick, is uh, leading us through, and Todd will be on the mic in a little bit. But on his mic right now is Jason Asinas, who is an old, old, old friend of many of us. Wow, and that, that uh, needed to be stated that clearly, Ken. <laughs> wow. Really did. I'm glad, I'm glad you said friend, because yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm younger than all of you. So it's fine. Not Allison. Uh, no, not no, Allison. Not me. And, any, and Jason works out at Township 7 Winery, and uh, he is going to lead us through a little bit of a tasting. Jason, you've brought in two different reds for us to try why don't you tell us about them tell us a little bit about township and sure thank you stuff. uh so uh we're in uh the township of langley and that's where the name came from uh, the original owners planted chardonnay and pinot noir in 1999 and got uh, the winery license in 2000 so this is going to be the 20th anniversary of township seven vineyards uh the name came from the fact that it's in the township of langley and back in the day they numbered the property so this was number seven in the township of langley so hmm. that just kind of fit uh, in 2003, bought some property on the Naramata Bench, where they bought some more, planted some more vineyards, and then started the winery. And so that's where all the production is right now. So, the grapes that are grown in Langley are used just for a traditional ma method made sparkling wine, uh, which we're going to be trying some red wine. So, not grown in Langley, grown in the Okanagan. Excellent. So, so what are the two that you're having us taste? So, uh, I have two. Both are 2017 vintages. So. Okay. Uh, we have first the 2017 Merlot. Mm. Uh, well, actually, there's uh, this. There's not very much of it, as was pointed out. So this will be the 2017 <laughs> Merlot, um, <laughs> because if it was full, of course, it would be the Merlot. But yeah. um, wah, thank wah. you. I'll just let myself out now. <laughs> and so no, you have the wine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. here all week. Yeah. Oh, uh, so very nice. Mm. Uh, this is our, our entry-level red, just under screw cap, so it's meant to be nice and approachable. It's 18 months of oak, uh, but so you still get some nice tannin structure, some nice uh, balance of acidity. Mm. Uh, it could be uh, benefit from some age, but still drinking quite nicely right now. Excellent. As someone who doesn't drink a lot of reds, I, I appreciate the approachability. It, like it's, it's nice and light. It's not super, super aggressive. Which uh, is good for me. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I, I did that on purpose. I think it's uh, it's very it's it's a very uh, don't spit it all over your mic. That's pretty expensive stuff. So. I like uh, it. It's did I have to sign a waiver on some yep. on this? Okay. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so this uh, this is a very well balanced wine. A sign of a good wine means nothing should nothing mm -hmm. should stand out. It shouldn't be too much acid or too much tannin or too much anything. It's just a nice balance and still got a good mm -hmm. uh, good length to it. It's lovely. And, and so what's the other one? Uh, so the next one we have here, it's a wine that's called mm -hmm. NBO. It stands for North Bench Oliver. And what this is, is we're speaking more to the place where it comes from. Mm -hmm. So Township 7 owns a vineyard at the north end of the Black Sage Bench, which is just outside of Oliver. So North Bench Oliver. Oh. On that vineyard, the vineyard's mm -hmm. called Blue Terrace. And on that vineyard, we grow Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, and this is a blend of predominantly Cabernet Sauvignon, also has some Cabernet Franc and some Merlot, so bigger, fuller bodied. You should notice more texture, more structure. This one sees more oak, and it's built to age a little it bit did. more. Yeah, and a bit this more be a little, a little bit more intense. Uh, yeah, so it's yeah, it's a little more assertive. Excellent. And how long have you been working out here? Uh, I got here about 9.30 today. <laughs> 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 Thank uh, you very wow. much. Yeah. Thank oh, you, Jason. Uh, uh, you, you've been here about seven years, right? Uh, yeah, just <laughs> about seven years. And yeah. is it okay to say the other thing too? 
Oh my god! Wow. Ken, yeah. Ken. Yeah. Um, this is why I'm not I'm usually a, the main host. Yeah. yeah, it's nice to see nothing has changed with you, Ken. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, no, you can. Yeah, we can. We can say that this is my last week working at Township Seven. Uh, for uh, f- this is a fantastic brand, as you can tell. The wines we're drinking are mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. They're uh, wonderful. It's just time for me to transition into a new, uh, a new, new career. So I think it's appropriate moving from uh, moving on from Township Seven after my seventh seventh year. Seventh year. Yeah. year of yes. Well, here, we so. we we also mm. at uh, Rector's Cupboard have all moved on from our previous uh, vocations too. So welcome to the club. Yeah, but you actually you. have a job to go to. So yeah, and I am not getting fired from no. this one. So <laughs> just kind of just to be clear, because that would be awkward. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, thank you very awkward. much, Jason. It was all great to have you. Well, the pleasure here. was all yours. So and uh, right. yes, it certainly was. <laughs> right. And as Todd steps up to the mic, it is my pleasure to introduce our guest, uh, uh, Brad Jerzak, who is uh, was a uh, Brad, you're a pastor for 20 years. You've authored 18 books. Uh, you're a preacher at uh, the local uh, Orthodox monastery. Uh, you're married, three kids, a grandchild, and you're also Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick. Uh, anything else you want to add to add to all that introduction? No, that's a mouthful. That's, that's about it. That's good for you? Excellent. And uh, so I'm going to turn it over to Hi, Todd. Ken. To start. Hi, Ken. Hi, Allison. Welcome, Welcome Todd. Hi, Brad Jerzak. Do I have Hi. to say Brad Jerzak? Please every, don't. Every single time. <laughs> it's like a so, persona, and especially children do that. Oh, yeah. are you Brad Jerzak? <laughs> it's one word, right? And uh, <laughs> yeah. hashtag even. So Yeah, so not professor or doctor or can we just... You could call me Brad. Brad, okay. We'll go <laughs> that would that. be your preference? So, uh, or thanks, Bradley. Thank you, Jason, so much. Thank thanks, you. Jason. Great to see you again. You've edited that out already. Yeah, Everything yeah, yeah, is yeah, all yeah. done. We're great. Um, we are here. It's. I mean, I think we should point out it's the day at which we're here. It looks beautiful outside. It's mm-hmm. sunny. It's fantastic. But what's the date? March 16th? March 16th. March yes. 16th, 2020. 2020. And we are absolutely at the beginning of this. Well, it's not so much the beginning, but it well, seems like every hour is ramping up with this COVID. The what now? And we This have may be the last public gathering. We may on be. the way out here... <laughs> We Justin Trudeau to said to us, like, not directly to us, but... <laughs> he called us, He yes. said, you should stay home. I know, we I was reading that on the, the teleprompter yeah. on the ceiling of the dentist's office <laughs> as I was looking up at the ceiling. We'll never forgive that moment. <laughs> right that around was the amazing. Same, right around so the same time, they said, and all dentist practices are being closed, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's good. Yeah. I'm kidding about um, that. They didn't but, actually And we, that. you know, having said all this, everybody's on edge. Everybody's feeling shaky. Nothing is certain. Uh, there's no major events. Now they're saying nothing over 50 people and stay home. And so we enter this time talking about things that really, really matter to us in terms of the future, the future of uh, faith and, and expression. But uh, we're sitting here on a day where, you know, a lot of things we just don't know. And so we appreciate those of you who are listening. We don't know when this will go up. Uh, it might be, you know, we've turned a corner on this mm, thing and, 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 and we're curious about how people used to talk. It might also be that we're right in the midst of, of um, still some terribly difficult news. And so uh, so we're in that context and we're aware that, that you know, everybody who's uh, living right now and not just here but around the world is carrying that context to some degree. So with that and having said the context we're in, uh, Brad, if you could just tell us a little bit about your story I think that it might have some familiar strains to the story that uh, many of our listeners and ourselves in terms of your relationship with the church and Christian faith. So, let Sure. Us yeah. So I grew up in a, in a fundamentalist Baptist church um, with wonderful parents who taught me some good things that I've kept to this day. I still love Jesus. I still love scripture. I still love sharing my faith. Um, but at some point... Um, Fear was introduced into all that. Mm-hmm. And so for my first 20 years, I, let's say I began with a real living connection with Christ. But from the time I was 8 to 18, it became very much about fear. And, and so faith was just fire insurance. So I wouldn't go to hell mm-hmm. right. and wouldn't get left behind. Um, eventually, I went off to a, a conservative college that embedded that stuff even more deeply in some ways. Which one? I can't say. <laughs> and then, um, <coughs> no, I, it was Briarcrest, yep. and I did a bachelor's lots. there, a master's yep. there, and I 
you know what? I'm very grateful for the mentors yeah. I had there. And they gave me the tools yeah. to deconstruct. To ask these questions. Right. right. Um, I got married to Eden uh, upon graduating. And at that point, I was hoping to teach in a college, but all the doors shut. And suddenly her church called me. And they, that was Bethel Mennonite Church here in Aldergrove mm -hmm. near, nearby. And... Um, and so I was, I was a youth, young adults, and outreach pastor there for 10 years. But also at that time, although I was with Mennonites who were really teaching me to love the Gospels and to mm -hmm. see everything through the Jesus lens, in addition to that, uh, we became very good friends with folks down at the Langley Vineyard. And so I became uh, quite open to things of the Spirit yeah. and actually... Charismatic expression. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. really quite a healthy, small-c charismatic expression yeah. as we experienced it in our Mennonite church where the elders were all old Jesus people. Right. And their children were now in my youth group. So there was an openness to what we were doing with that. And and a lot of that was expressed as outreach. Uh, we did a, a coffee house and so on. So I was there 10 years. And then um, we really felt a call to sort of church planting for people on the margins. Mm. In fact, we didn't realize how marginal they would be uh, <laughs> in that, you know, I thought, oh, we'll get a bunch of 20-somethings. And you know, at that time, it was Gen Xers. Uh, but in fact, who showed up was people with disabilities. Mm. So a full third of our church were people with disabilities really? in full-time care, plus yeah. their care workers, which then created an, a messy space that felt safe for addicts to come in. And we started having a real run of addicts of various types. And then on top of that, just a space for children to run around and be themselves who probably wouldn't be able to adapt to a normal church. And then why not bring in the poor as well? Right. And so that's, and we didn't engineer that at all. It just kind of uh, is where we were led. So I, I co-led or led that for 10 years. I, I run in decades apparently. And then in 2008, <laughs> I stepped down. We had a whole series of tragedies. Yeah, you, you, you referred to 2008 a number of times in your writing. Yeah, I think I used a swear word for it um, because it was just like so many, so many tragedies, deaths, overdoses, uh, suicides, cancer, strokes. And, and this, is, this is a church, mind you, of maybe, maybe 180 people. Right. And... and uh, it, I counted 35 major tragedies, inclu including an, a gruesome murder and an abduction oh, that involved oh abuse. And I mean, uh, and at the, for the first time in my life, I, I didn't know if I trusted God. Mm -hmm. And it was so volatile and we were so vulnerable that I told the leadership team, it's like, you have to have somebody leading who trusts God. So I stepped down and the idea was I, I'd kind of hang around, but then they prayed about who to bring in and they asked my wife, yeah. And uh, so she ended up leading the church for the next five years as a real healer while I went off and did my PhD. Okay. Meanwhile, and, and in my PhD, it was a real healing time for me. I was working out the issues around tragedy and the cross as a response. This is your PhD affliction. work? Yeah. Okay. Mm. That the cross is a response to that kind of virtually irredeemable So affliction. you're working the academic part, but also experiencing healing in that pursuit yeah and i and, and i was i was pretty damaged and so i was going to 12-step recovery i had a spiritual director my phd supervisor was like also a mentor to right. me who you know every second meeting we would have was more about applying merton to my uh, okay. wounding right. uh, and that's when i also came under the discipleship of Archbishop Lazar, uh, the abbot at Abbots at All Saints Monastery. Right, where we a, were with, with uh, David, David Goa. Goa. David Goa, right. Yes. It's an Eastern Orthodox group. So he, he, t he tucked me under his arm. And I, I have, uh, by the time I graduated with my PhD in 2012, was it 2012? Um, I joined the Orthodox Church formally. And I was, I was tonsured as a reader. So it means I do like chanting and stuff, okay. preaching and stuff like that. And then, um, but that, I also realized I can't go back to pastoring. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then the doors opened for me to, to teach. And first I was with Westminster Theological Center in England, which was modular. And I would commute to there once a semester. Okay. And now in New Brunswick, I commute there for two weeks per semester. And uh, all the while I've been kind of writing my journey since 2003, things right. I've learned and, along and the way. And lots of people read that. Uh, well, I, have not enough. Okay. <laughs> Could well, be we more. Yeah. We did. And, uh, I, 
what what do you what gives you kind of hope now about hope. this your personal kind of experience and all Don't. the interactions you've had with the church and hope my goodness I don't know. Do like, I how have, do, you, do I have hope? Do I? Do you, you seem? Do hopeful? you perceive me as a hopeful person? Well, yeah, and what we've read, and so we've read. Now we've talked about a more Christ-like way, um, a more Christ-like God. Yeah. You're talking now that you're writing this book, a more Christ-like Word. Yeah. And then, can you? Um, we had a number of quotes from the book called "In, in uh, Incarnation and Inclusion." Yeah. Correct. That all of the all of this is hopeful. And it is hopeful. Yeah. Here's my hope. My hope is that God is exactly like Jesus. And Jesus is the expression of infinite love Mm. and nothing else. Any other attribute we assign to God is a facet of that one nature, which is love. And so in the Orthodox liturgy, we we say that he's a a good and merciful and man-befriending God, which is like sexist language for a lover of humankind. And I've come to believe that in my experience as he's healed my wounds and used me in terms of being a wounded healer, especially with people um, uh, who require radical inner, inner healing. And we've, I've just been a witness of hundreds and hundreds of encounters with Christ where people um, were at the absolute end of themselves and hearing the good news that God is absolute love revealed in Christ mm. and that he co-suffers their suffering and that's kind of the point of the cross or one of the major points that i i've seen that just do such powerful healing work that i'm like okay this i don't have a plan b anymore and i don't even need one and and so i believe that god is good that god is love and that there's redemption and i see it all the time Mm -hmm. now you know that you're um a leader in in some of this that for people like us i mean we're we're led to ask some of these questions around we're talking about in a minute, a concept of deconstruction. That So there's something in your life, in your experience, I don't know if it was work with the marginalized or the disabled, you know, you're saying you have a number of disabled people in that community years ago. Um, but something happened that you allowed yourself to be open to ask these questions when many are not, right? And that's no disrespect to them, but that you begin to realize that, so I'm just thinking of some of our experience that, at first, you can feel some of that stuff as kind of like you're being a bit of a shit disturber or something that you're. But then you realize, no, I, I think I'm asking these questions for much, much better reasons than this. And that then you kind of have a leadership mantle in in doing something that is a really responsible thing. Do you do you see a connection between some of the um, work with the marginalized and stuff? Or I guess what I'm asking is, what led you to ask some of these questions of deconstruction? Briarcrest gave you some tools to do that, but the institution itself isn't you know, want necessarily wanting people to ask those things. So what is it that led you, you think, to ask those, to be open? Yeah, there was a couple elements. So one element was was very early on as a youth pastor, I thought I'm going to start with a simple gospel because we were getting a lot of kids in who'd never been seen the inside of a church before. And my simple gospel was God God loves you. Immediately, I that was not a safe thing to say because they're like if god loves me where was he when this happened and we became a magnet for people who'd been molested and abused as children and so we had to learn how to do the inner healing work um the hard way and 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 then we would just see christ really addressing that with with folks so that was one it was working working with abused youth and then you begin to get a taste or you feel the texture of his character of mm. God's character. And then at some it's point, um, so, so that starts with, with abused people and then later with disabled people and later with addicts. So front lines work on with, at the margins. And the other is I'm, I'm unapologetically a mystic. Yeah. And so I'm a mystic first. And, and my, theo- my theology is a reflection on mystical connection. Right. And so, for example... Um, I don't mind saying this now, but like in retrospect, I would, after testing it thoroughly with major people that I I respect, Eugene Peterson, N.T. Wright, so on, um, I I came to the conclusion that the cross was was about healing. It was not about God punishing. Um, um, It was not about the father punishing his son or turning his back on him because I had never seen that kind of God and now I, I... I heard explicitly, I'm not that kind of God. 
Mm. And that, that caused me to dive into the early church fathers and to do the theological right. work in the wake of that to weigh and test what I was perceiving. And you discover so much more there, obviously, right? Than, than we would have known maybe in, for me, a Baptist church or a Brethren church or for you, a Baptist church and vineyard, even though you're grateful for these things. I wanted to ask and we can, about this concept of deconstruction. Okay. Much of your work addresses that concept. So for those who are listening, this idea of like, it, which was often told to us as a danger, like you better be careful about asking these questions because it's going to take everything apart, right? Well, that's so, certainly like the experience I had growing up was like... You had people warn you. Well, yeah. No, it was the, you know, don't stay away from church too long, otherwise you might lose your faith. And now I'm like, well, may maybe that, that means my faith wasn't that strong if it can't withstand that. But it was certainly not, like, I wasn't taught to critically think, in the church at least. Um, and because that was dangerous, I think, to the institution. Is that still there? I think it is. I mean, I'm... Like, is that still kind of an ethos over much of, I guess we're saying mostly the evangelical church, that well, that's the be only careful that about I, questions? Yeah. Well, doubt Do you is still bad. feel it, Brad, in, in how people relate to you? In, in some streams of it, yeah, but okay. now that you've got like tens of millions of people leaving, it's not even a choice anymore because for right. a lot of people, it's, it's not like... I mean, I suppose some trendy progressives intend to deconstruct but a lot of people like me it would you undergo it and myself right. yeah and i you, think we you, can. so mm -hmm. just like in 12 step recovery you come to believe in a particular kind of god we we came to not we came to stop believing in a particular kind of god and and some of that was very very good like um when i wrote her gates will never be shut which mm -hmm. is my my book about hell hope and the new jerusalem um it was because, first of all, I was going through my own private hell in 2009. I wrote it from my bed. And then on top of that, I had a whole wave of people coming like Nicodemus at night, whispering <laughs> questions to me. One group was saying, um, I would become a Christian if it weren't for this eternal conscious torment thing. I can't buy into that, so I can't follow Jesus. And then I had another group at the same time who were already Christians saying, I, I love Jesus, but I can no longer be a Christian, I have to renounce my faith. I'm like, why? Because I can no longer believe in eternal conscious torment. I'm like, wait a minute, we should double check if this is such a huge deal killer. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> and so I wrote a whole book about it, you know, and, and, and what I noticed was that the evangelistic sermons in the book of Acts, I, I went through every single one of them, whether it was one-on-one -on -one or to Gentile groups or to the Sanhedrin and Jews and so on, not once do they ever mention it, which is a pretty major omission if it's a if it's a deal killer, right? And then on top of that, you look at the the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, which which is a great summary of of the faith once delivered. Not in there. No. The Nicene Creed ends. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Period. <laughs> Amen. Period. That's and beautiful. Brad. So yeah. We had a one of our episodes not up yet, right? No, no, the one with David so Jennings. We we spoke with a it's to come. lawyer slash theologian. Slash I know David. Leader. What you know a David? wonderful guy. Yeah, we know David very well, and David uh, did a little episode for us, um, kind of in the context of David Bentley Hart's recent book. Yeah, uh, basically saying, you know, unapologetically universalist in its in its sense, but. Uh, so there's so much good conversation there. I think we've experienced some of the similar, some similar things that we didn't set out to go, like, how can I take this faith apart and how can I... That? And yet, sometimes the way people relate to you, I, I don't know, I mean, we kind of chuckle at it now, but that, you know, we're the people that other people warn people about. And <laughs> I think you've experienced some of that, right? Like the, the dangerous tag. Yeah, and I, I feel like there is a, there is a slippery slope Yes. You get warned about the slippery slope. <laughs> Ooh, all um, the time. So um, I, I do think there's, there's better ways of... of I, I prefer like art restoration. Yeah, you mentioned that. To demolition. Books, These right? were the, I was yeah. going to ask you about yeah. the metaphors of deconstruction. Yeah, so yeah. my concern for people who are in a free fall of deconstruction is that they'd end up alienated. Well, that's not better than, you know, maybe it's better, but it's not like, it's not mm -hmm. the goal. And so art reconstruction is, or art restoration is almost like a metaphor um, for, it's a conservative metaphor in the sense of I want to conserve the good things. 
I don't want to just blow the whole building up necessarily. I might feel like it. And in fact, maybe I need to do some, and here's another metaphor, I may do, need to do some detox and rehab before I can ever even think about community again. But I do have a concern for how many have gone through deconstruction kind of almost as a second conversion that causes them to renounce Christ. And I'm like, you don't need to. He's the best part of this. Mm. But it's hard when the, the name Christ is associated with, with abusive institutions. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, well, then I think I have something to say about this. Maybe, maybe I can be a midwife um, for, for people coming through to a new place where we get down beneath the grime on the masterpiece, mm -hmm. down to the masterpiece. And, mm. and that guess what? There's still something there. You speak uh, about that a fair bit in... A more Christ-like way, I think. That's right. Know. I do yeah. a chapter in there. On yeah, that. the metaphors and renovation. Allison, you had this uh, faith crisis question that I think we all really resonated with oh. in a more Christ-like way. Yeah, um, I think that uh, if I remember the context correctly, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, this was a quote from from somebody else saying, "I struggle to understand how in this area, or in this era, millennial, mill sorry, millennials are said to be the ones with the faith crisis." If we hand our sons and daughters a faith exposed as misogynistic, racist, unconcerned about creation and the poor, they aren't wrong to leave it. We give sons and daughters a serpent instead of a fish, a stone instead of bread. They leave. We say it's due to cultural relativism. Sons and daughters leave. We say it's just they just don't honor spiritual authority. If we loved like fathers and mothers, we'd be honored as such. And... <laughs> There, there's part where I, th I feel like it, it resonated with me in a particular way as a millennial. I feel like I get blamed for a lot of things. But I, th there is part where I know that I've had to, in some ways, consciously let go of some of the things that I was handed by, I would think, my spiritual fathers and mothers because I'm just like, I, I can't reconcile my, my faith and my understanding of faith with what was handed to me. And I felt that that was really beautiful. Um, and I wondered if you wouldn't mind maybe extrapolating on that a little bit. I don't know. That that you, quote was quite a mic drop, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> you had, yeah but you no, wrote it. Was, it it wasn't the book, too, though. No, was, I was citing somebody else. You're citing yeah. somebody, and there, for me, when I read it first, it was eye-opening because even someone who has, has been willing to ask these questions that are often labeled deconstruction or whatever, I have always kind of located faith crisis on the part of somebody who's asking hard questions about faith and maybe pushing away a little bit and this quote locates it on the, on the faith crisis is on the part of people who handed down a faith that is unwilling to be questioned or that and for me what resonated mm, also is that how people react when that happens if authority reacts to people who are asking questions like the authority itself is a wounded peer like they're offended by the questions yeah then that should tell us where the crisis is and so one yeah see i'm I'm a big exception to this because since the, I'm 55 now and since the time I was 17, I have had true spiritual fathers and mothers without interruption, usually more than one, exactly what that citation was longing for. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if I'm lucky or if I'm good at it or if I go create them myself. I, I, don't, I can't put my finger on it, but here's what happens. When I go through a faith crisis, I know who to go to. Usually, they have a big white beard, yeah. <laughs> or maybe they're orthodox. Uh, maybe like they're our friend David. Yeah, David, go with his one, and and uh, and I'm able to lament to him, and he listens without judgment. Same with twelve step meetings. I can go to any twelve step meeting of any fellowship, and I can sort of barf my pain out, and I'm listened without to without judgment. Or even like a, a really good one was Della Headley was a mentor of mine. So here, you know, here's a here's a woman who's now retired and she she taught me the ways of inner healing with the the most broken people in the mm. planet they were they were flying um you know non-christian so-called psychiatrists were flying people to her and i would just sit at her feet and i would learn and what i'm like blessing. i think i th i think people in faith crisis need to to have the humility to seek out folks like that. And, mm. and, and I'm told quite often, oh, there's just nobody like that in my life. It's like, you so don't know you one person it? with silver hair? Right. Go ask, <laughs> go ask them their story. Just find someone with a beard. It could be a homeless person. Ask them their story. And then I would say uh, explore spiritual direction with 
like we've got a whole spiritual direction movement now that are trained to listen non-judgmentally and to come alongside you and instead of trying to correct you, they'll you, ask you questions that lead to self-discovery. Do you see that as um, kind of a change in trajectory for, for some people of faith? Because like I said before, that definitely the the questioning the coming alongside people that that wasn't really my experience growing up it was the correction the teaching that i have the answers i will give you the answers yep. and those answers just didn't satisfy anymore and then i wasn't left with a lot and i had to f- kind of seek out some stuff on my own and i was lucky to find some people but there was part where i had to actively go against what i had been taught in order to seek out those people yeah and i think people can struggle with that yeah and, and you know what, it, and, and it might cost you $75 an hour. Well, so what? Mm. Like, go di- like <laughs> it's the best money you can spend. But I think the, the, the key difference is then mm. these people, the folks that I relate to as mentors, um, they've had enough life experience to have a severe limp themselves in the spirit. Mm. And they respond to my questions with questions instead of solutions. Yeah. They're not trying to fix me. They're trying to open up my heart to say what I'm really thinking. Like, um, I'll give you an example of how when, when Steve Imbach, my spiritual director, um, took me on 10 years ago, and it was during my, my quite disastrous deconstruction. Mm. Um, we got to talking about prayer and about tragedy, and I, he made it so safe that I found myself yelling at him say, about God. Why isn't he obeying me? <laughs> and then I'm like, I could, how, like, how do you get to the point where you could be that honest that you think prayer is about making God obey you and you're mad at him because he did? I yeah. don't know, but it's because it like this. So, this, so they allow you the space so that question can come out. They cr- mm. yes, which they was under there space. the whole time, and you see this and exactly. And I think so. I think for millennials, for example, it's like if you've been really burnt in the ways that you've described, then it's tempting to just say well, then I'm just going to have to do this on my own because anybody in the, peer, in, in the age groups above me were the problem in the first mm. place in terms of giving me mm. platitudes and I can't go back there and I'm like, there, there are other streams. There's thoughtful people there. Yeah, and yeah. you can even just Google how to find a spiritual director. <laughs> well, our friend Ken Bell is... I, I could give he, he, he could help you I, out there. Actually, I'm Ken, I'm going to get you maybe right to, to read a quote that I yeah. don't know why I'm feeling these two things together, but this is a quote, I think, from Inclusion yeah. in Inclusion and Incarnation that the question I had associated with it to you, Brad, was why do you think that people questioning their faith is so threatening to many people? And uh, a quote that is in the book from, well, you can read it. It's from yeah. Billy Graham, right? Yeah, so it's the... In the book, it's it's uh, Schuler and Graham having a conversation. Uh, two unlikely people, in some ways, and Schuler's just asked him, you know, where do you where do you think this faith thing is going? And Graham's response, I think, is, I mean, when I read it, I, I questioned whether or not you were accurate in getting like Billy Graham said this, um, but he said, well, I think there's a body of Christ which comes from all Christian groups around the world or outside. The Christian groups. I think that everybody that loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're members of the body of Christ. And I don't think that we're going to see a great sweeping revival that will turn the whole world to Christ at any time. What God is doing today is calling people out of the world for his name, whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world. They're members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God uh, they may not even know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something that they do not have, and they turn to the only light they have. I think they're saved, and I think they're going to be with <laughs> us in heaven. Now, I can just see that last part's the real a tough lot one, of Billy Graham fans going, what? Do you know what year he said that in? No. I, I don't. 60s. Let's say it's sometime. No, no, no. Like, no it was way more recent than that. They oh, were quite elder. Both of them were elder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was way more recent than that. It was within the last so decade. So I guess there's two questions that I, I have in my mind from this. One is, why are people so threatened by the questioning of faith? But in light of this quote, it's also, why do you think we want to hold on so tightly to like who is saved and who is not, who is in and who is out? What's been your experience there? I, I think there's something really ugly under it, and that is that it, it is the thing that you see in the older brother in the prodigal son story. Mm-hmm. Right. I've been slaving away my whole life 
to please God. And you're telling me that they're in? Yeah. That's not there. What have they done? This son of yours who squandered your... Exactly. And yet, you know, Graham's not saying something that radical historically. So in the very early church fathers, they were calling Plato and Philo saints. Right. Hmm. Because they saw... They saw the body of Christ being anyone oriented toward the Christ, even if they didn't know it. it. So, in other words, someone turned towards the light that created the universe. That's Christ, isn't it? If you have a high Christology, Mm -hmm. it's Christ who's the creator of all things. So, when John Wesley would come over and meet First Nations people who worship the creator, who's the creator? Christ is the creator. Oh, so they're worshiping Christ, but they don't know it's Jesus of Nazareth at this point. And so then Wesley would have to ask himself, then why tell them about the gospel if they already know Christ as creator? It's like, so they would, and his answer was, so they would know their full inheritance. Right. That they don't need to continue sacrificing, that they don't need to be afraid of death, that they don't need to appease God for their, you know, so there, there's really good news for people who already know Christ. In fact, it might even be good news for Christians. Right. Who've completely forgotten the same well, principles. And in, 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 in the same book, Incarnation and Inclusion, one of the stories that's, that just totally leapt off, the pa- leapt off the page for me was your story about the prison chaplain who's going around and telling the prisoners, unlike you've got to repent, you've got to confess of your sins, and then this one says to them, you're already in. Yep. You're, 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 you're in. You're already in. And at that, I mean, the evangelical his other chaplains are saying, what are you saying to them? What are you saying to them? And out of that, the story is they begin to actually resist. What do you mean I'm in? You have no idea what I've done. Right, because uh, nobody, in, in pri- nobody in a prison is guilty. Right. They, they're all there because of someone else's fault. We've all seen Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, and the <laughs> system has screwed them over, and, you know, and it was probably their lawyer blew it and, the, and their wife or some, you know, something like that. And so the they're in, me. Yeah, they're, they're in total denial, and then suddenly this guy is like, no, no, I'm saying you're in. Now the confession comes out. Right. And, and they begin to respond to their inness. It's so beautiful. Well, they're they're, res- to, they're yeah. responding to love. They're not having not to make coercion. an account mm. for themselves. They're responding to love and saying, how can you, you have no idea who I am. How can, how can God possibly love me? You, you have no, and that, and it's, it's, out of, it's out of the father going to the, to the son and throwing his cloak around him and saying, you're, let's, let's have a party, you're still alive, that yeah. that's when the son... It's connected to the banqueting table um, parables too, where yeah. he says, go and compel them to come in. Why would you need to compel them to come in? Because they don't think they're worthy. They don't think they, don't think they belong. Mm-hmm. No, no, like make them come in because they really want to, but they've been self-disqualified and others disqualified. Which is the same reason they've got to put up all those walls of yep. here's, here's what's been done to me, right? That yep. I want to I move along this line of the high Christology because it's come up a few times in, in conversation just in the last number of minutes. And a quote that you have in one of your books, I'll read it, it's that you say, sadly, catastrophically, the movement called Christianity is old enough and large enough to have adopted unchristlike images of God mm-hmm. and transpose them into unchristlike ways of being in our world. If we're honest, we are no longer famous for communicating God's love, much less demonstrating it. Today, Christianity is frequently associated with being against. We're best known for being unkind, judgmental, and condemning. To many of our critics, we're the worst humanity has to offer. That's a scathing thing to say. Yeah, I was grumpy that day. I'm, I, I was probably really grumpy. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, no, you see, it's, it's stated strongly, but the, yeah. the heart of it is saying... No, I stand by those words, too. Yeah, yeah. Right. Why do, why do you think we so easily move away from Christ-likeness in religious circles? What is it that compels us kind of away from these things? A fear, I guess, would be one. Yeah, fear. I think some of it is we've... This goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden, the story, the story of Adam and Eve is that when they, the immediately when they stumbled, they felt shame. And then out of their shame, they constructed an angry God that they needed to yeah. hide from. Mm. Yeah. I feel like even Christians now who have not been cleansed of their shame mm. then construct a God who's angry. And, and well, it's a logical response. It is. So I need to hide from this God, but yeah. it's, it's a idolatry. 
It mm-hmm. is to yeah. create that God. In fact, uh, St. John Cassian said it's a monstrous blasphemy. It's a monstrous, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, um, so I wanted to ask, this leads us actually to, you start one of the chapters in a book that I read of yours um, with a quote from Merton. You mentioned Merton earlier today being significant. For me, part of the deconstruction in my life actually started when I was finishing a master's at Regent and, and came across Merton really in any depth for the first time. I'm going to need that later. So, um, and, uh, and it was in this book, New Seeds of Contemplation, and that's the That's the a chapter. brutal book, eh? Isn't I mean, it, fantastic? it takes your well, ego apart. Yeah, yeah, Rick's read it as well. And, but that chapter in there that stayed with me the most is the one you quote from, where I think the quote you have is that the devil makes many disciples by preaching against sin. And that yep. is the moral theology of the devil chapter. And I took a few quotes out just to get you to react to great, them. Almost. Great. And so I'll read a couple of them. Um, so I'll read the one that you uh, start with. The devil makes many disciples by preaching against sin. He convinces them of the great evil of sin, induces a crisis of guilt by which, quote, God is satisfied. And after that, he lets them spend the rest of their lives meditating on the intense sinfulness and evident reprobation of other men. Um, so I guess there it would be, you know, what do you have to say about the concept of sin and, and this kind of quote? Yeah, we've had this th- this thing about, you know, the love the sin or hate the sin. Mm-hmm. By the yeah. way, Jesus didn't say that. That was Gandhi. Yeah. Okay. And so um, what's going on there? It's like, well, we're, go- we're going to love the sinner. So first of all, there's a problem. I am, I am viewing them primarily as a sinner. Mm, okay. If sin is just like my well. struggle. Yeah, but it's them, right? That's yes. why it's condescending. Them, Always looking down. Those people, and I'm looking down on those people. That's kind of contemptuous. And in and and my my eyes need to be healed so that I don't see a sinner so much as I see a child of God who may be like struggling with the passions of their soul and so on. And so, um, and that they're they're to be a sinner is isn't an identity issue. It's a it's just the human condition. Right. It's like well, everyone's everyone struggles with that. But can we look through that to the heart, right? And then second, we'll go, well, but I hate the sin. It's like, well, I hate sin too. I hate harming people. I hate how sin harms me. But if you, if you stop there, what will you do? Oh, I, I just have this, I, I loathe my sin. So now I will either medicate it right. with more <laughs> or... Uh, can I have another glass of wine, please? <laughs> yeah, well, that well, was a joke. Yeah. Oh, yeah but, well, but still. <laughs> and then, um, so I'll, I'll, medi- I'll medicate... This, this sin I hate so much, or I will, I will begin then to project it out there onto others. And that's what, that's what Merton's talking about. My own, my own inability to deal with, with, with sin, not as hatred, but like let's move past that into forgiving, mm-hmm. forgiving others, forgiving myself, and then even beyond that, healing it. So the, the, the church, the, the liturgy, and, and the New Testament talk about cleansing of sin. And what it means by that, I think, is this. Any meth addict is very appreciative if they're forgiven for drug abuse, but they'd even be much more appreciative if they'd be freed from their addiction. Mm-hmm. So if we're just s- stuck at hating sin, well, mm. it's not doesn't helping anyone. Much. It doesn't offer anything. Merton well, goes, oh, sorry, Alison. Oh, I was just going to say, you, you go back to, in, in a more Christ-like way, you talk about that Yahweh is first and foremost all about restoration. Mm. And yeah. I just, I feel like that is like a stop all like thing. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. Like if, if we can see through the lens that, that Christ is actively restoring, actively redeeming, that that, that is, that is his character, that it is out of this intense love that, that changes God as I understand him. Yeah, that's, that's like, that's the hope. Because you've got these incredibly powerful texts like um, Acts 3. The, the process we're in right now is called the restoration of mm. all things. Which is and, so beautiful. And Christ says, behold, I am making all things mm-hmm. new. And, and, he's not, and, and he will not quit until, until he hands the whole thing over to his Father. And God is all in all. So these, the all language around his restoration is so gorgeous. And it's what actually, I had been theologically orthodox for 10 years, but I began attending. You didn't the worship, know. <laughs> well, no, I knew, but I didn't want to worship there because it uh. was like, right? But, I, but when I did, here's why I did. Because in, in every Sunday morning during our service, we say the word mercy or merciful 154 times. 
this that's is about re- enough. A, that's more than yeah. once a minute. And that becomes the lens for who this God is. The nature of God is, is love experienced as mercy, which is not just the evangelical, well, withholding judgment. Mercy is like every manifestation of goodness in our lives, even right down to me getting here safely th- today. Right. Safe travels, health, good crops, a sunny day. Every manifestation of the goodness of God is his, is his mercy. And so I, I just feel like so much of this, this is why theology matters. Because yeah, what, what are we teaching our kids about God? Hmm. Is he the God who's... I, I have a friend who just had to withdraw her, her, her child from kindergarten in a Christian school because they would not stop telling her kid that you're, you have a dark heart. And it was all about total depravity in this five-year-old. And it's like, stop it. That's not, that's not the heart of God, right? It's too much to hear, to bear. Like it's, well, and I think you mentioned that in one of your books, that idea that we say that God uh, says, I love you. But, but if you don't love me back, yeah. then, sorry, my hands are tied. Eternal damnation for you. This right. idea that you have to... Th- this idea that the cross is only effectual when you activate it. So we end up becoming our own saviors. The, the cross does a whole bunch of things, but until you say, I love you back, until you say, please forgive me, until you say, I'm a saint, then the cross is entirely ineffectual. There, and, and you reference that in, in one of your books, talking about that um, the, the cross becomes, it, 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 uh, creation was a failure, and, there, and so too the cross, the crucifixion and resurrection becomes a failed program as well. Yeah, I mean, for the vast, the vast majority of the human race, it did no good. Yeah, right. Unless, and that's not to say that there's no summons to respond. The summons no. to respond is so you can experience the fullness of this. Right. right. Mm-hmm. But Romans five is super clear. You're already forgiven, and you're already reconciled. Right. And that what the what second Adam, Adam did, is more powerful than the first Adam, right. which is not actually what when I started to think I, Romans five is a big chapter for me, kind of the deconstruction because it was like sin came through Adam, first Adam. It's like and, and it affected everybody, but how much more then? Yeah, we're Adamic universalists, but right. we're not <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. The first Adam is more powerful than the second. Yeah, it? yeah. The, I, had a, I want to read one more Merton quote just because it and tell people go lovely. read this chapter. <laughs> this is not a lovely quote, but it it um, he says it sometimes happens that men who preach most men it's a written it's a while old. ago so gendered pronouns but it is mostly men yeah that's preaching this I, stuff, yeah that right? men who <laughs> preach most vehemently about evil <laughs> and about the punishment of evil so that they seem to have practically nothing else on their minds except sin are really unconscious haters of men. There's some grace even in that term. Um, they think that the world does not appreciate them, and this is their way of getting even. I wanted to ask, I had another quote to read from producer Rick. It's just so good. Let's not, you know, um, <laughs> if for listeners, go and read that chapter. Um, read Brad's books, but, but also read the chapter Moral Theology of the Devil by Thomas Merton in New Seeds of Contemplation. Uh, I wanted to ask one question as we kind of move towards closing off here. and That's about this fear that we can have of people walking away from the faith. And so we each have, you, you can, you've speak about a couple people in some of your books that have said, I can no longer call myself a Christian, that I can know. In, I would think, Allison, more so in your upbringing even than mine, that was kind of the big danger, right? That somebody would walk away. Um, I'm not frightened of that anymore. It sounds to me like, to a large degree, you're not either. Why not? Well, I, 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 I'm watching what they're walking toward. Right. So if they're walking away from an idol, you're halfway to worship, right? So an atheist who has renounced their retributive idol, even if they've called it Jesus, um, then that's the cleansing part, and now they can begin a reconstruction phase, and I don't believe that God abandons them in that moment. Amen. And so I'm able to, I'm able to walk with them too and say, wow, you know, Good point, good point, good point, good point. Uh, have you thought about this? And so, uh, but we're all on our own pace. And my, you know, my friend David Goa, he, he really helped my wife and I when, I, I'll say my godfather, David Goa, mm-hmm. he helped my wife and I because we ended up in different churches. I, I needed this, the therapeutic nature of divine liturgy in the, this high church orthodoxy. And she, 
she needs the egalitarian space in a low church mm. kind of small c charismatic thing that and and so we're at different churches and mm. like now what do we do and uh because we're both we're both pursuing a need well here's what he said brad Eden needs to be completely convinced that you are completely convinced that the path she's on is holy and mm -hmm. it's not for you to bump her off it. It's for you to walk with her on it. And then I started thinking, what if that, what if I do that with everybody? Hmm. What if I see everybody on a, where they are today yeah. on their journey is exactly where they need to be. And I can just walk with them and, um, and I'm not trying to recruit them, but I could sow love into it. And so I'm, you know, I'm Twitter friends with some ex-church atheists now. And uh, I'm like, I, I get it. And I, I actually yeah. affirm the reasons why they left. Sure. It's like, you absolutely needed to. This sure. was like domestic violence in a marriage. Um, but do I want you to live on your own forever? If you have love in your heart? Right. No? Okay. Well, let's, let's walk and see where it goes, right? And so... If Christ is a good shepherd who pursues the, the wandering sheep until he finds them, that's like my favorite phrase, I think, until he finds them. Mm. Then this idea of walking away, he hasn't walked away yeah, from them. Yeah, that's the key. He may have led them, for, and I, he may be leading yes. them forward. Hmm. But it will, it will require the kind of, we're going to go from, from this hill to that mountain, but we've got to go through a valley yeah. to get there. And trust me. It's, it's such the part of the strain with that is to, and I can hear it in you already, so I know it's like safe to, to go there, is to not kind of push that person to a different place they're on. Like, so that I'm not saying to them, oh, I, I'm glad you've walked away, but really it's, you'll eventually come back, right? That it's, it's this acceptance of them where they are right now. And even with this hope, you know, that, that we know it's coming from this sense of hope and love that we're identifying with them. So that rather than to kind of say, like our friend, I'm thinking of our friend who, or a friend of ours who, similar thing, that to not say, okay, you're there now, but one day, you know, you'll really come back to Jesus or something like that. That mm -hmm. it's, it's something so much more hopeful and open. I want to read a quote from producer Rick that he found, you know the person who said this? Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, it has to do with the kinds of things we're talking about. He says, um, in a conversation on social okay. media somewhere, but back in the early 80s at a pretty conservative Baptist seminary, well, of course, my preaching professor made a point that has stayed with me. He said, we don't need to convince people about the law in our sermons. He said, the law has had its way with them for the previous week, that they arrive at church carrying the weight of the law on their backs. If we spend half our sermons, half our sermons adding to that, it has the impact of kicking them when they're down. He said that they arrive in our pews hoping to hear a word that is good news, that gives them hope, that reminds them that grace is enough and makes all the difference. I found this insight to be true and expounds on the epistle of John's point that God is love. Mm. Thanks, Ricky T. Would anyone have sir? left if that's what they heard yeah. week after week? Yeah, I know I can't. Well, actually, I know a few people. It's like, I can't go to that church anymore because the, the, they're just preaching good news and I need a spank. Yeah. And I do hear that. Well, there's, I hear there's a movement back to this with some young people that there's a movement towards kind of certainty. Absolutely. And that there's an attraction to people who will tell them what to think, what to do, what's yep. wrong with them. It's something that we need to kind of uh, be mindful of. But so I suppose there's some. Yeah, I, in fact, some of the most popular, fastest-growing churches provide that. But the, and So I asked a pastor about this. It's like, why, why is that working? Like, why, are people, why have people left the church my wife goes to when they're preaching God is love and going back into mega churches that are telling people, literally, from the front, you have no idea how disgusted God is with you. Why are they doing that? And part of it could be like a fear of getting it wrong and therefore going to mm -hmm. hell. But I think some of it too is like it's a it's a evangelical form of penance. Mm, so well, I, I'm I'm being I'm having my spank for the bad stuff I did last week, and now I have my license for the stuff I'm going to do this week. And the fruit is not transformation. And 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 if you add skinny jeans and a smoke show to it, then it's all cool. I heard someone <laughs> we could do this. Here. I had someone uh, that we worked with last year, a few years ago. Actually, it was around that David Goa. David Goa did a. Uh, tasting room theology for us yeah. and someone who was helping out with that won't try to identify too much uh, and was going to 
one of these churches like, you know, church in a movie theater that attracts a lot of young people. That, and he had been there for some time and was frustrated and was leaving. And he said, I'll tell you the business model. Here's the business model of places like that. They attract young people. They, they get the young people to come to this scene. The young people start having sex with one another. And then they use that, make them feel guilty. And now they've got them, right? Wow, now, wow. I don't know if he was correct in that model, but it's a little bit of what you're saying. That it's kind of like this, we can get them here and then tell them how bad they are. And it's something that, I'm sure it's not the whole of things, but this is somebody who is saying, this is, this is a really foolproof business model. Yeah. Because it keeps people... Hooked. I would say that's cynical. And by cynical, I mean something specific. Yeah. Cynicism is, is the shadow side of prophetic. It sees something true. It sees I through the bullshit, yes. right? But what it does is it doesn't deposit hope. doesn't give me anything to go with. And, yeah. I, I, and so I want to say, yes, you've seen something. And now what's so, the so word what? of hope in so this? What? So yeah. what? Yeah. Amen. I, yeah. I feel the same way. So, uh, Ken, Allison, do you have any other questions you want to ask before we wind up? I, I mean, I have so many so ma- I know. conversations <laughs> that we could go on. Um, I, I guess the, 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 the one I would ask is, uh, and, and whether you use the word progressive or liberal or whatever, but where where does the more progressive movement of the faith need to guard itself? And you talk a bit about that in your your emphasis in in the in book on the exclusivity of Christ. But where where might you see the progressive movement needing to guard itself? Yeah, a couple things. So one is they become the cultured despisers. Mm, and they right. become as contemptuous as Jerry Falwell Sr. ever was. Mm-hmm. And it's a form of left-wing fundamentalism. And cynicism that we and, just spoke And cynicism. Yeah. So what I want to say is, um, here's the thing about the entire right-left spectrum. The entire spectrum gives you a script. And that script includes who the other is and how to exclude them and silence them. And if you, So even, even people who would be very who would say they're tolerant and inclusive, I found them to be quite brutal mm. with whoever the other is. And so I want to say, could we either need to transcend the entire spectrum or we need to go deeper than it? I don't know whether to go up or down, right. but I'm just right. saying the spectrum right. is the world system John warns us about. And so you could be on the right or you can be on the left. If you're engaged, people will try to slot you somewhere yes. on it. And then, okay, yeah. so let's say I believe in welcoming refugees. Oh, you're on the left. The moment I go off the left script, I got to watch my back and because right. they'll come after you. And it's really ugly. And so you suddenly have to be, be afraid of your own tribe and now you're appeasing them and you're more afraid of them than you are. Never, right. And it never ends. And so I've experienced it from both sides. Right. I'm like, oh, there's fundamentalism across the board. Even, even <laughs> centrist doesn't work. You've got, to get, no. you've got to get off the spectrum but still find a way to engage. How do you do that? You follow Jesus and you say, Jesus, where are you taking me? What do you, how am I to participate in the restoration of all things? I want to participate in the restoration of all things actively and, um, and I've discovered that no matter how safe you play it, you will always have haters for that. Amen. So well, don't, you, so you don't worry well about, about it. Um, you, and you introduced it here in your answer, this yep. concept of othering. Yep. You speak so well of it in your books. So those who are listening, go and find that. Allison, you had one thing to oh, close um, us off? I don't know. I just, not to end on like a down note. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Um, I forgive from you. From... Thank for what you. you're about to do. Thank you, Brad. Um, <laughs> like when the priest blessed the soldiers you got at the pre-forgiveness. Of <laughs> Battle of Gettysburg. You got pre-forgiveness, so make <laughs> this Ooh. good. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, now I feel some <laughs> weight here. 2,000 years ago, <laughs> you were forgiven for what you're about to do. Yeah. <laughs> you, you talk in, in a more Christ-like um, God about uh, speaking with uh, Eugene Peterson. Yeah. Uh, and... And how you, his response to you when you were frustrated with things and discouraged by things, and his his words to you were, "Be disappointed." Yeah. And I found actually so much hope in that. <laughs> yeah, it's not negative at all. No. no. Um, and you you talk about later like that that has enabled you to trust again because whether the results are glorious or whether they're disappointing, in either case, God is still a loving Father who is always close. And I feel that, that that is a really important thing to allow people to be disappointed with God and that that isn't something that then shakes their faith because of it. You're like, 
be disappointed and know that he still loves you. So you say it's not negative. Tell us. I just think that was a great place to end. Yeah. <laughs> we will end on yeah. disappointment. For, for me, it was in the really in the context of prayer because I had come from a charismatic side where mm. we're trying, where, where we thought we had keys to seeing healing and recovery and so on. If and you do X, Y, Z, it, if we do X, Y, Z, it does this. And in fact, it often did until 2008 and then it didn't. Right. Mm. And then, and then, so, so the whole charismatic expectations I had. Yes. Expectancy is great. We're meant to have faith. I mean, read the gospels. Faith is good, right? But, but that, my faith was transposed into, into toxic expectations mm. that left me angry at God when he didn't obey mm. me, right? Yes. So then the, I, I end up at this um, pastor's conference interviewing Peterson from the front. I'm like, okay. And he, so his solution had been like, there's a contemplative way to do this um, where it's more about our own transformation than manipulating events. And like, I totally get that. But then I, I said to him, look at, I have contemplative friends that they're so disillusioned by prayer that they literally purposely construct prayers, contemplative prayers that can never be disappointed. Yeah. Huh. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like, how Jesus approaches prayer in the Gospels. <laughs> what do you think, Eugene? And then he just paused for a long time. And then he said, be disappointed. Well, like, in other words, put enough skin in the game mm -hmm. to be disappointed when we don't see the restoration of all things. And instead of... So I felt like there's a way to be charismatic that abandons people when they're not a good testimony for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a way to abandon people when you're contemplative who won't pray for their healing. And just leaves them, leaves them in their suffering. But that means then you've got to stay at the cross with them. And so we did this all the time with people with disabilities. We're gonna, we'll sit in your suffering with you and we'll pray for alleviation of your daily grand mal seizures. We're not going to stop praying for that. But if we don't see it happen, we also think there will always be a blessing of withness hmm. in it. And so Peterson really settled it yeah. for me. Well, mm. thank you so much, thank and you. thanks for being here. Um, have you read John Swinton? On I haven't. Oh, go read Ooh. John Swinton. Yeah. Will do. Um, the Gift of Time, I think. The Gift of Time, yeah. Something um, like that. He's absolutely fantastic. Cool. So, um, and thank you so much for coming yeah, here, taking you. the time on this day, Dentist Day, and... My COVID pleasure. Day. COVID day, whatever number. We do it have is. some parting gifts for you as you oh, as good. you head out, though. Um, as Thanks so much, and we'll cover. end on such a nice note. Be disappointed. Thanks yes. for <laughs> listening to the Rutgers <laughs> Cupboard. Thank you very much, Thank you. Ricky T.